Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Morning, Granary. I feel as if I'm a member of your congregation. I talk to uh, Matt Darvis uh, really every day. And with Matt and Britt, I hear so much of the wonderful ministry and community work that you're doing. Well, we're coming to the end of Joseph's story. And what a story it is. When you think that he, in this chapter, dies at 110, he dies reconciled with his brothers. And there's this wonderful verse in uh, chapter 50, verse 20. What you intended to harm me, speaking to his brothers, God intended for good to save many lives. What a note of hope this verse is, particularly in COVID-19 crisis times. Well, there are so many lessons that you would have learned on this study of Joseph. From a rather boastful boy without much uh, EQ, talking about his grandiose dreams, his brothers getting infuriated, and then betraying him and selling him off into effectively slavery. A father told his dead, a father who loved him above the other brothers and mourning his death, a cupbearer, a prisoner, an interpreter of dreams, and a prime minister in one of the greatest empires, Egypt. A prime minister who actually delivers a budget surplus. Think of that. And of course, all the nations around with drought who don't have storehouses of grain come down, including Joseph's own family, to receive from his granaries. Well, the last two chapters of uh, Genesis, chapter 49 and chapter 50, are really Jacob's death and Joseph's death. Chapter 49 is Jacob really giving prophecies and last instructions on his deathbed to the 12 boys. And what a messy family this is. It's unbelievably messy. There is uh, Jacob, whose first wife, Leah, who he didn't really love, who actually has six of the boys. God opens Leah's womb, we're told, because Jacob doesn't love her. He loves Leah's sister, Jacob's second wife, Rachel, and God has closed Rachel's womb. Messy because, in addition to those six Leah has, there's two boys from Leah's servant, Zilpah, her maidservant. There's another two boys from Rachel's maidservant, uh, Bilhah. And then, of course, there's Joseph and Benjamin, born to Rachel, who Jacob particularly loves. Well, this messy family story actually then culminates with Jacob's death and Joseph's grief. And in chapter 50, Joseph's grief is most of the chapter and it culminates in Joseph's own death and his own reconciliation, final reconciliation with his brothers. Well, as I read this story in the times of COVID-19, I thought the lamenting, the grief, the taking of time in two chapters, chapter 49 and chapter 50, is a message for the church today. 
So often we've wanted to be the church of praise. God dwells in the praises of his people. We've wanted to be positive and upbeat and proactive. And I love that, that we're not negative. But when we read scriptures, it would be just as true to say, we the church, we God's people should be known as the church of lament, of carrying people's grief, of understanding their distress. I find this very, very challenging. I wrote an article this week, it was on Monday in The Guardian, saying we have lost the art of lament. And when the art is coming together as a community and embracing and hugging and being there with people in grief when they've lost a loved one, how do we do that in the times of COVID-19 with physical distancing? Funerals can't have more than 10 people. So when we go to Joseph's mourning of his father and his lamenting, we read in verse 1 of chapter 50, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Here is something that we can't do, and yet we need to do, and we need to find ways to let people know we are grieving with them, even with physical distancing in this time, because their grief is great. Their anxiety and fears are great. Well, I was really touched reading a story of a Brooklyn doctor. New York, as we know, is now the epicenter of death and COVID-19 in America, though it's spreading throughout the states, which now has the highest number of infections. This doctor said, so today in the middle of all the madness, there was a 100-year-old Hasidic Jewish lady with COVID pneumonia. And I was desperate to send her home so she wouldn't die in the hospital. But she dropped her blood pressure and we had to keep her. And then for an hour, her son kept calling me to find out how she was. And I finally told him, look, she's a hundred years old with pneumonia in both lungs. She's not good. She's not going to do well. And then he wanted to talk to her. And I said, you can't. I'm too busy. And then he called back 10 minutes later and I said, listen, sir, your mother's not even conscious anymore. And he said, that's okay. It's very important that I do a prayer for her. Could you hold the speaker of the phone to her ear? I had 10 other pressing things to do, but I stopped what I was doing out of respect for this 100-year-old woman, and I put the cell on speakerphone and told him to talk. He started the prayer of the dead, and he began to cry and could barely get the words out. And I saw she had numbers tattooed on her arm. He was crying for his mother and praying the Shema, the Hebrew ancient prayer for the dead. The verses of unity, and it woke up some emotion in me, emotion that I had forgotten about. Time slowed down, and I felt restored to myself. When he was done, he thanked me and blessed me. And I said, thank you to him. This is owning 
grief. When grief is not owned, it's leaving us in despair. It fuels resentment, sometimes scapegoating and blame, and we hang like a shadow. In my article in The Guardian this week, I quoted Albert Camus, who wrote the book Plague. He said, when the plague came to our town, the first experience was exile. Exile is something that the Bible knows all about. Camus said, the feeling of exile, the sensation of a void within, which never left us, that drifted through life rather than lived. The prey of aimless days and sterile memories, like wandering shadows that could, could have acquired substance only by consenting to root themselves in the solid earth of their distress. In this article, I said the shadows of watching what's happening in Italy. I'm speaking with friends in Milan, Baptist pastors who are dealing with the grief and the terror stalking and the deaths. The shadows we watch on our TV news in New York, in London, of empty streets. We know we have to root these shadows in the substance of the earth of real distress. This is what lament is in the Bible. It's owning the grief, letting people know we grieve with them. Because when grief is owned, we can move through it to actually hope and to action and to living again. I was particularly touched hearing on the news last night of a 13-year-old boy who died in London without his parents by his side. The grief of not being able to be there when loved ones die. We need to acknowledge this grief has to be owned in the earth of distress, in lament, and carry people's grief. Well, Genesis chapter 50 is all about lament and grief of Joseph for his father Jacob. And because Joseph was now such a big man, effectively the prime minister, the Egyptians mourned for Jacob for 70 days. 70 days. Now that is like stage three lockdown. And then we're told in verse 7 of Genesis 50, what must have been the longest funeral cortege, perhaps in history, that Egypt, at Pharaoh's direction, went up with Joseph and his family and brothers all the way to Hebron in Canaan. And it was all of Pharaoh's officials, all the dignitaries of Pharaoh's court, and we're told the dignitaries of Egypt. Well, this is what you call a state funeral. It would be in our term today, imagining the politicians in Macquarie Street and the judges in Phillip Street and the Governor General from Yarralumla, all going on a long journey, a funeral procession out to Coobapiti to mourn someone they didn't really know, Jacob, a person who uh, had an important son. This, the Bible says, was a very large company who went to grieve. Here is the communal harrying of grief, harrying Joseph's grief and understanding that in solidarity to be there, to let him know you're there, is actually how he can move through grief. We're told 
that this lament is fundamentally important. When we think of the scriptures, it's amazing how many of the prophets pick up lament. We have a whole book of lamentations about it. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 21, Jeremiah says, Death has come up into our windows. It has entered our places to cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the squares. We're looking at empty Times Square and Trafalgar Square, empty of young men. Jeremiah says, Call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skilled women at morning to come quickly, to raise a dirge over us, so that our eyes may run deep with tears and our eyelids flow with water. Here is grief being owned by the prophet because of what is happening to Jerusalem. The temple destroyed, the city ransacked, the people carried off into exile. People who believed that they were exceptional, that God would always protect them, that they were invulnerable. We are living in times where people thought we're self-invented not created. We're self-sufficient with all our medical technology, only to discover we're vulnerable. The virus does not discriminate. Tom Hanks, Peter Dutton, Boris Johnson, even our own Norman Swan on ABC. We are not self-sufficient and invulnerable. Psalm 42.3 says, My tears have been my food day and night. Well, people say to me continually, where is your God? Here is the lament that's right through the scriptures that we, church, the people of God, must hold at this time. In the depths of the night, we don't need more reprimand for just being unfaithful, for sinning, for breaking the covenant. What the prophets do, what is required is the honest voicing of the reality of loss. Yes. We know we are losing the old world, the world of security, prosperity, entitlement, a world departing. Every disaster in my World Vision days I went to, and I went to most around the world, there was a disaster where I went, but beyond that place, things were normal. The economy was functioning. You could organize donations. You could organize help. We're in a world where this virus is everywhere closing down absolutely everywhere. There is no normal just beyond a place where there is disaster. Well, the prophets remind us that lament is to tell the truth of loss, of bitterness. And it's not just Israel's terrible loss. It's tremendous loss, the prophets say, to God. God grieves. We often think of God just as judge, you broke the laws, this is the judgment that follows in Deuteronomy. If you keep the covenant, blessings. If you break the covenant, curses. It's like a natural law that just flows. And there's truth in that moral universe. But actually the prophets don't just pick up God as judge, they pick up God as father, grieving the loss of a wife. God uh, as husband, sorry, grieving the loss of a wife. God as father, grieving the loss of children. Tremendous loss also for God who grieves. Well, when we come back to Genesis chapter 50, we find that this very large company sees 
Jacob buried in a tomb in the field of Maccabah near Mamre. It's a field that Abraham bought. It's near Hebron. I've been to it. It's called the Patriarch's Tomb. And Abraham was buried there by who? His sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, father of the Jewish nation. Ishmael, father of Arabs, Palestinians. I say in my book, a lot with a little, if only Jews and Palestinians could meet at the cave of Machalamah and talk peace. They are both sons and descendants of Abraham. There's the hint that Abraham, his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, Jew and Arab, buried their joint father together and showed a period of unity, of reconciliation. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 30, verse 9. And of course, the period of lament then switches from grief and mourning to a period beyond grief and mourning to how are we going to live. Immediately, the brothers of Joseph switch to their real fears now in living. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us? What if he pays us back for all the wrong we did to him? It's in verse 17. And so they say, let us tell him that his father Jacob's last instructions was asking Joseph to forgive his brothers. The brothers come, say, we are prepared to be your slaves. Don't hold a grudge. Jo Jacob asked you to forgive us. And the Bible just says in verse 17, Joseph wept. Here is a different sort of grief to grieving those who are dead. It's a grief of saying, how now can we live? How can we forgive? And those wonderful words in uh, verse 20, Joseph says, what you intended as harm, God intended for good, to save so many lives through Joseph's wonderful administration through the drought years and having a surplus. Well, we read that Joseph forgives his brothers. This really moves me because so much of the story of the Bible is that violence comes from sibling rivalry. It starts with Cain and Abel. We see it with Isaac and Ishmael, father of the Jewish nation, father of the Arabs. We see it with Jacob and Esau. We see it with Joseph and his brothers, violence coming from sibling rivalry. We see it in the women. Rachel and Leah, who are the wives of Jacob, are sisters. And one is loved and one is not. One is barren initially and one is not. I know a little bit about sibling rivalry. In my memoir, I reflect a little bit on my brother and I, both at one level competing for the love of, my, of our father, who was such a wonderful man but it was so important in our lives. When I wrote my memoir, a lot with a little, my mother, who's alive, who's 91, read it, and she said, Tim, I had no idea how much your father is still in your head. I think this is true of Joseph as he buries his father Jacob. And then there is this reconciliation with his brothers. 
And that is where we end this story of Joseph. He says, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid, he says to his brothers, and take you up out of this land to the land he promised to Abraham. Here is the God who will take slaves who can never leave Egypt and do the impossible, the God of freedom. The prophets then move from lament to say, this is a God who does the impossible. Sarah was barren. She had no child. And just like God created the world out of nothing, doing the impossible, the barren woman is a miracle out of nowhere, a child. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, for she was barren. When the Lord saw Leah, Jacob's wife, was unloved, he opened her womb. Rachel was barren. God opened her, her womb. It's why Isaiah 54 says, Sing, you who are barren, who did not bear, burst into song and shout, for you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate, the desolate woman will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. And you, descendants of the desolate, will possess the nations. Here's the God who, like in creation, did the impossible out of nothing, does something out of nothing. It's why in Luke 1.37, the archangel Gabriel, announcing to Mary she's going to have a child, says, for nothing will be impossible for God. Why Hebrews 11, reciting the faith of Abraham and Sarah, said God did the impossible. There was a conception, conceiving of a womb, in one as good as dead. Sarah's so old. Well, as we move from lament to actually saying God is alive and active, imagining the world, which a church does week by week, as if God is alive, a God who can do the impossible, imagining the purpose of that God for his world being acted on, the world being aligned to flourish. That's what we do week by week in prophetic imagination, imagining a freedom of God to do the impossible, a new covenant written on our hearts because the old Sinai covenant has failed and we disobeyed. Let me finish by saying here are two questions I want you to think about this week as we finish the story of Joseph. The first question is this, how do you carry the grief of others? How do you show solidarity when we can't have funerals of more than 10, where people are anxious and fearful? How do you let them know you are with them in their grief? The second question is, and given the story of Joseph and reconciliation with his brothers, who do I need to forgive? How can I forgive? Even if someone intended harm for me, God intended it for good so I can forgive, the good of forgiving others. With those two questions, may this week you reflect on the life of Joseph and what God teaches us for today in COVID-19 through his life.